fear used to paralyze me if I ever had to get up in front of people. I was afraid of what people might think of me or what they would say about me if I failed, and I was sure, very confident always, that I would fail. The elementary school plays that we were forced to be in, I hated them. In school, I sat in the back of the classroom if I could, and I was silent most of the time unless my grade depended on class participation, and then I would speak. When it came time for me to play my first tenor sax solo in my high school jazz band, I convinced myself I was sick so I wouldn't have to go to the concert. I didn't. I put off the required public speaking class till the end of my college and career, uh, my college career, and then I, I took it in the summer because I knew the class would be smaller and it would be a short class. I always found a way of getting out of or getting around uh, things that would require me to get up in front of people alone and do something I was afraid of doing, or worse, that I would be ridiculed. But once, that didn't work out so well for me. An older friend of mine that I respected uh, called me, and she asked me, she sponsored the Bible Club at her high school, and she was having a, a retreat with 30 to 40 students, and she asked me if I would speak to the students at this retreat. Normally, I would have thanked her for the invitation, and then said, well, I would love to, yes, but, and I would have thought of something. But there was a snag on this occasion. Kathy was with me. When my friend asked, Kathy, the girl who I just started dating, Kathy, the girl I wanted to impress, Kathy, the Bible college graduate, Kathy, who is teaching Bible in the public schools to hundreds and hundreds of kids all over our county, Kathy, who is heading to the mission field and hoped to be going with a brave, bold man. There she was, <laughs> listening to the entire conversation. What a terrible moment for me. I wanted to live in my fear where I was comfortable. But I also want to impress Kathy. What's a guy to do? Pride prevented me from wanting to speak, but pride was driving me to speak. Because as always, as always, I was focused on myself. It was all about Craig. Trusting more in what I believed I couldn't do instead of trusting in God and what he could do through me. Well, I did agree to speak. And in spite of myself, the Lord blessed it and the students responded well. That should have helped me trust and not be afraid right? To never say no again, right? Wrong. It only made me worse because then I was convinced that my success was just a fluke, that it would never happen again, you know, better quit while I was ahead. You know, it's hard to trust God to help you do well what he wants you to do when you're afraid to do it or believe you can't. I struggle to do it and that I stand here this morning in front of you, it's evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit to change and transform. And it doesn't come easy. And if you knew me as well as I know myself, you would know that I'm telling the truth. But that's my story. And you have your own stories. Stories of fear that sometimes paralyzes you. Stories of pride that cripples you. Stories that recount the time you only did the meager thing that you could do in your own strength and with your own abilities, because you didn't trust in God and what he could do through you. This morning, I don't want to talk about my story or your story. I want to talk about the disciples' story. And as we look at their story, that you and I would learn to trust God more, because that's what we all need to do here this morning, every one of us. We need to learn to trust God more. So toward that end, and with that hope, uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear, read together. The word of the living God. 
We'll start in verse 1 and then skip down to verse 5. But listen, because this is the word of the Lord. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray together. Lord, now we ask that you would fulfill your promise to add your blessing to the time when your word is read and heard. Lord, through the power of your spirit, teach us through your word and teach us to trust you. And teach us the sweetness of doing just that. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Look again with me in verse 8. As Jesus sends these 12 out, he gives them this instruction. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Can you imagine? You know, Scripture doesn't record for us the reaction of the disciples to this command that Jesus issued to them. We're not allowed inside their hearts, we're not allowed inside their minds to to hear their, their doubts or their fears. But if I fished for a living, or if I collected taxes for a living, and someone told me, go heal the sick and go raise the dead, I would be just a little bit paralyzed. I would be saying, but, 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 Lord. And we look in vain to this passage or the parallel account in Mark or Luke to find any instruction whatsoever from Jesus on how these disciples are actually to accomplish what he told them to do. All we know here is that according to verse 1, Jesus gave them power and authority to do these acts, but he doesn't tell them how that they are to be done. Presumably, the disciples were to do what they saw Jesus doing. You know, Matthew 4 says that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And so the disciples had watched as Jesus did these things. You know, the past few weeks, we've had Spoleto pianists practicing here on this piano. Very, very good pianists. And I enjoy coming in and listening to them. And I see the music that they play in their little black notes all over the place. Now I could listen to them play all day long. But if one of them handed me that music and said, now you sit down and play it like I did, (laughs) I I would stare at the notes. I would stare at the keys. If Kathy, my wife, I love to watch her stand at her easel and paint. I could watch her paint all day long. I could watch her paint a beautiful picture. But if she handed me the brush and said, now here, you paint a picture just like I did, I would stare at the brush and I would stare at the canvas and I would do nothing. Watching someone else do something that they can do doesn't help me do it when it's my turn to do it if I've never done it before. And so it's one thing to watch Jesus heal. It's another thing when you have to do it yourself. So what did these disciples do as they went out in pairs, just the two of them, without Jesus, when they encountered the very first sick person and they're supposed to heal them? I know what I would do. I would look at my partner and say, you go ahead and take this one. You know, you, you, you go first. What did the disciples do what, what, what if they got up the courage to say, be healed, and nothing happened? Then what? 
What did they do when they encountered their first leper that they were supposed to cleanse? And and maybe they rubbed their tunic on the leper's skin and said, be cleansed, and nothing happened. What then? Well, seriously, when they came upon a dead person or someone brought them a dead person and said, here, bring them back to life, what would you do? What if you said, come back to life, and they just kept laying there like a corpse? That was supposed to be funny. Dead person laying there like a corpse. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, it's going to be a long sermon. The only thing the disciples could do in any of these situations is trust Jesus. Trust that the power that he gave them was real and obey what he commanded them to do. Trust that in some way, beyond their abilities, God would work. I think it's on purpose that we're not given the how here. The words they spoke, the gestures they made, or we would formulize it or or bottle it and make it all about ourselves. We would turn it into a big show. We would make it all about ourselves. I think the lack of information about what the disciples were feeling or how they accomplished it highlights the fact that the miracles, the healing, the cleansing, the casting out, the raising from the dead was not about the disciples. It wasn't for the disciples to gain a following for themselves. It wasn't about what people thought about the disciples. It wasn't about what the disciples thought about themselves. It wasn't to boost their self-esteem or measure the depth of their spirituality. The miracles were about Jesus. Jesus sent the disciples on this trip to the lost sheep of Israel, to to God's people, to those who had been waiting to those who perhaps no longer believed in the kingdom of heaven at all, or for those who believed that it would never really come. Well, as we've seen in the last few weeks, here it is. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it comes from someone very unexpected. Someone of whom people were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? How can Jesus be the one who brings the kingdom? Yeah, he he is the one. And just so your faith won't be taxed too much, here's the proof of it. Miracles that Jesus performed prove that he wasn't just the son of Mary and Joseph, that he is Jesus, the son of the living God. And so the miracles authenticated the message of the kingdom. They authenticated Jesus as the king of the kingdom. Scripture tells us that Jesus performed his first miracle at a wedding. And there he turned about 180 gallons of water into wine. Really good wine. The best wine that those people had ever drunk. And then John tells us this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. See, the disciples needed to put their faith in him if they were to follow him. The disciples needed to see the glory of Jesus if they were to trust and obey him. And so Jesus gave them what they needed. He performed a miracle. And through it, he did reveal his glory. And through it, they did put their trust in him. And that's always the pattern. Seeing the glory of Jesus putting your faith in him, seeing the glory of Jesus, putting your faith in him. At the very end of his time on earth with these same 12 men, as they were seated around the table at the Last Supper, 
when the disciples still did not clearly understand who Jesus was, what he had come to accomplish, that he and the Father were truly one, Jesus pointed to his miracles to confirm his identity. He told them around that table, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Just believe the truth or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. The miracles proved Jesus was Christ. When John the Baptist heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. See, miracles were evidence to the world upon which Jesus had lived for such a short time that he truly was the Messiah, the Son of God, the heaven-sent Savior of the world. And so you see, it is always about Jesus, not about us, not about what we can or cannot do. And if we can get our minds around this, you and I as individuals, if we as a church can get our mind around this, our lives would be transformed. And I know our church would be transformed because it would be made up of people who live their lives to direct other people to Jesus, who point with John the Baptist and say, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who say, along with John the Baptist, to ourselves and to those who would try to make it about us, who would try to make it about the kingdom that we're trying to build, about who is following us. As they came to John and they said, John, all your disciples are following Jesus. And what did John say? Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Can you imagine? Matthew doesn't even report on what the disciples did on this trip. What the results were, not a single word. Nothing. Mark and Luke only give a brief report. Mark says, Mark says they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many, pe- many sick people with oil and healed them. Luke says, so they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. And so the disciples trusted Jesus. When they encountered that sick person, they trusted that if they anointed them with oil, they would be well. And that's what happened. So it was trusting Jesus and the power that he gave them that made the disciples successful at the things that Jesus had given them to do. And I know that their story can be our story. We can trust. God's power can work and bring success to what we do for him and for his glory. And we can remind ourselves, this isn't about me. This isn't about my glory. It's about Jesus. It's not about what people think about me. And for as long as I think it is, I'll be paralyzed by incapacitating fear, worried about what other people think, or worse, I'll be an obnoxious egomaniac as I praise myself. But when we trust in the Lord, we are spared from both. And so as we move on, what is it? for which you and I should trust the Lord. Should it be miracles like the ones that the disciples performed on this trip? 
Should we trust that God through us will raise the dead and heal the sick? Or is there something different that we should seek? You know, the miracles truly were attention getters that pointed to Jesus. Briefly come to earth to establish the kingdom of God. And the miracles reinforced whatever it is that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of heaven. Healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, cleansing the lepers. All of that got people's attention and at the same time accomplished what God in his grace and his mercy and his compassion loves to do. And that is to make people whole in body and spirit. The miracles cause people to listen to the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and to look to the person of Christ. They weren't intended to be spectacles or shows. On two different occasions, the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus, and they asked him, give us a sign, give us a miracle. And on both occasions, Jesus said, no, you will get no other sign, no other miracle, except the sign of Jonah, by which he meant as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, he he would die, uh, be buried, and raise again to new life. But instead of acknowledging the miracles that they had seen over and over again as coming from the power of God and the Son of God, they said he performs his miracles by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. It's black magic that Jesus is using. That's what they said. Apparently, the feeding of the more than 5,000 people with the two fish and the five small loaves was not enough. Never enough for the Pharisees. And the scribes, they wanted more. Maybe they wanted manna to come down from heaven on everyone. Or perhaps they wanted Jesus to be like Elijah and call down fire from heaven. Or maybe they wanted to be like Joshua and and speak and cause the sun to stand still. It wouldn't really matter what Jesus did. Wouldn't matter. Because still they would want more. Still they would want something different. Because a miracle in and of itself is never enough. A miracle in and of itself is never enough. It will be forgotten or its benefits will fade away. The water that was turned to wine was all drunk. A sickness cured only makes way for another sickness to attack. Death will come again to the one that was raised to life. Lazarus died again. Jairus' daughter died again. The widow's son died again. No miracle will ever completely satisfy. It will only offer a temporary fix because only Jesus is enough. Only Jesus is enough. So if we have Jesus, if we have Jesus, why do we want miracles? What is it that he must prove to us through them that he's not already proven to us with a life given for us? And who do we seek Them for, for our glory or for Jesus, for our pride, for proof that our faith is real, for proof that God really does love us because he does miracles through us. If we pray for a miracle to sustain life or renew life, is it because we fear death? No one wants to die. No one wants to die. No one wants to be left behind by the death of someone else. We don't want that. And rightly so. But even if healing doesn't come, Jesus is enough. He's enough for the one that's dying, and he's enough for the ones that are left behind. And so whatever miracle you're hoping for, in and of itself is not going to bring lasting satisfaction to you, unless it's a miracle of a heart and a life made new in Christ. 
a life transformed. That's the miracle. That's the miracle for which we should pray and for which we should trust Christ. The miracle of a transformed life. The miracles were evidence that Jesus was real, that he really was the Son of God, and that was the key to their importance. We need evidence. We need evidence to accompany our message that what we say is real, that what we believe is true. Evidence that says, look, look what's happened to me. Look at the change that has taken place in my life. Look at the difference Jesus has made in me. We need to pray for the miracle of a transformed life. Simply defined, a miracle is when God intervenes. God intervenes and he makes something other than it would have been had he not intervened. Water can only ever become wine when God intervenes. Otherwise, it will remain water. What would you have been like if God hadn't intervened in your life? What would you have been like? Who would you be? What would you be doing had God not intervened? That change in you is evidence that a miracle truly has taken place. That God has made you other than you would have been. That God has made you better than you would have been if he had not intervened. Yours is a life transformed by the gospel. John says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. You see, the kingdom of heaven is no longer new to earth. As it was when John came and when Jesus and the disciples proclaimed its arrival, the kingdom of God now stands majestically with 2,000 years of evidence lined up behind it. Evidence of the power of the gospel to transform lives. Evidence of the power of the gospel to transform and civilize culture. Evidence of the power of the gospel to advance and elevate culture. The evidence is in. Nothing more is needed. God has free reign in his kingdom to do what he will do to further establish and extend it. And if that be through miracles, so be it. But Jesus has done enough to prove the kingdom is real and that he is the king. And so I don't say what I say this morning to justify prayerlessness or lack of trust. Well, Craig said, you know, miracles, who needs them? We'll just plug along the way we are. No, that, that's not the point. And I don't say to justify the theological position of any dried up church or dried up denomination that has reduced the Christian life and the Christian experience of knowing God and, and tasting and seeing that he is good, that they've reduced it to the mind and to logic alone. Anyone that says they've got God all figured out and knows exactly what he will do and will not do. That's not my point. You know, God cannot sin. Apart from that, I think he can do just about anything that he wants to do. And I don't say it so that we aren't stretched every day. We need to be stretched every day to trust God for what we cannot do. My point is this. The miracle of new life in Christ is the eternal miracle. The life of new life in Christ, that miracle is the eternal miracle, the one that lasts forever. And so that's what we need to pray for. Lord, bring new life through faith in Christ. Lord, bring a transformed life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray more that Jesus will work in and through you so that others can see him in and through you. Pray that you, as I pray for myself, that we will produce fruit in keeping with repentance and that our changed lives and that the lives we live for the glory of Christ will be what gets people people's attention and draws them to the one who brought about the change. 
So what are you going to do when you are confronted with something in your life that you believe you can't do, that you don't have the ability to do, that you would rather not do? Something the Lord is asking you to do. I'm telling you, it cannot be any more intimidating than being brought a dead body and told, make it live again. Trust in God's power. Obedience to the Lord's command allowed the disciples to perform the miracles the Lord had for them to do. And trust in God's power and obedience to the Lord's command will allow us to do whatever miracles the Lord has for us to do. I love this line in the last song that we're going to sing. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just from sin and self to cease. From self to cease, to quit. Just from Jesus simply taking life and joy and rest and peace. That's the answer to the question, why should I trust? Because you rest. When you trust, you rest from striving. You rest from seeking attention. You rest from worrying about performing and being evaluated. You rest from making everything about yourself. And you trust in God. And you say yes to the Lord. And whatever it is that he asks you to do, and you trust and you rest in what he does through you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that you would make us people of great trust in you. So many things in our lives intimidate us, Lord, and scare us. They loom before us often as giants, as mountains we can't get around. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be people who trust in you, who are listening for your voice as you guide us and direct us through your word to do things. Lord, you want us, you want your people to do things to minister in your name to get out the good news of the gospel. Lord, you want our lives to show evidence of the new life that you have placed in them. It's the way you work, Lord. It's the way you've worked through the centuries. Saving one person by the testimony of another. And so, however you would have us do that, Lord, preaching, singing, teaching, serving in the nursery, working in the kitchen, whatever it is, Lord, any of those things we can make about ourselves, well, change the best diaper around, make the best tea ever. We can make everything about ourselves, Lord, whatever we do. But we pray, Lord, that we would trust in you to do in us and through us what we can't do for ourselves, to do way beyond, Lord, what we think we can do. Trust in the power that that you give to us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would receive the glory for it and that you would reveal your glory and that people would come to faith because they see your glory. Now we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.